Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of MedTech POV, the podcast brought to you by AdvaMed, the world's largest trade association for medical technology companies. I'm your host, Scott Whitaker, President and CEO of AdvaMed. And for this episode, we're pleased to have with us Justin Klein, co-founder and managing partner at Vinsana Capital, a top venture capital and growth investment firm focused on funding innovation in the medical technology world. Justin has an impressive background, and I would say a unique one in the venture capital world. Not only is he a medical doctor, he's a lawyer as well. He received his MD from Duke and his JD from Harvard, and perhaps we'll get a little into how that training gives him a unique vantage point in medtech venture capital. He's also a member of the board at Advomed Excel, which supports our industry's small companies. We appreciate his leadership so much there and look forward to talking about the challenges and opportunities that face our industry and the patients we serve. All right, welcome, Justin. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. I always like to start these out by giving folks a little sense of who the person is that we're talking to today and what your background is. I think most interesting to me, Justin, and maybe those who are listening, is what was your path to becoming an investor in the medtech space? That's a good question. Um, I appreciate it. I am a medical device and medical technology-focused venture capital investor. I've been doing this for about 15 years. Today, I'm proudly a co-founder and investor of a firm called Vensana Capital, where that mandate is our focus. Prior to that, I had been a, a partner in a firm called New Enterprise Associates, or NEA, for about a dozen years. But my path into venture capital was, was not one that was anything that I had thought about early in my career path. I was a pre-med student. Actually, I grew up in the Midwest in Columbus, Ohio, and, and there were no venture capitalists. And uh, <laughs> I wasn't aware of things like medical devices and startups. And even right. in 1999, when I was graduating from college, there was something called the tech bubble, uh, the internet right. bubble going on. And I had no idea about Silicon Valley or any of that. I ended up going to medical school and I did a combined degree and went to law school after doing some work in healthcare administration. And so I was developing a fairly broad-based perspective on healthcare. And I think because I had that opportunity to, to do some exploration during graduate school, I ultimately found my way into this sort of emerging growth company and innovation ecosystem and ultimately found an opportunity to get into venture capital early after completing my medical degree and and law degree. And from there, at at NEA, I had the opportunity to to invest in multiple areas, but developed a personal passion for med tech. I really appreciate the nature of the products, the innovations that our entrepreneurs are working on. I think the types of personalities that entrepreneurs have resonate really well with me personally. And frankly, I like the fact that we create value in this space by proving the value of our mm-hmm. products and our services through things like clinical evidence and cost effectiveness. And, and when our companies do that well, everybody, I think, benefits. And, and, I, and I like that. So I like, I like being a part of this, uh, this universe. It's been a bit. You have a fascinating and I think probably a little bit of a unique background being a lawyer and a doctor and then a venture capitalist as well. I assume there aren't a lot of people with that background in the space, at least not many that I've met. Is that fair? That's true. There's a fairly small number of MDJDs out there. Not many at all that I'm aware of that have gotten into venture per se. Right. I've enjoyed it though. It's been a nice way for me to to be a good partner to teams that that bring right. a lot to the table. I'm an expert in either of those fields. I, I can kind of play a lawyer or a doctor on TV, but but that's right. about it. 
I at least know what questions to ask and, and what kinds of experts to really go to to get the right answers. But I try to incorporate all these perspectives into both what kinds of investments we make and how we help our companies you know, navigate right. the paths that they're on. And I do enjoy getting involved in policy, too. Right. You know, I, I believe a lot in public service, and I hope that the investments we make and the products we bring forward can really impact thousands, if not millions, of patients over the life of my career. And I think part of that is also understanding how we can shape policies to make sure that patients get access to these things and yeah. we have a healthy ecosystem. Justin, why, why med tech versus, say, biotech and pharma, where you have a lot of those small entrepreneurs as well? But MedTech, you decided was the right path for you. What was unique about that that made it particularly appealing to you? Well, I'd say it originally started with medical devices in particular. You know, medical devices are very tangible. They're frequently implants or products that interface with the body in ways that you can appreciate physically. And you can predict what they're going to do and hopefully what they're not going to do. Drugs, to me, were always much less tangible. And I've done some biotech investing and it's just harder for me to really wrap my head around molecular targets and mechanisms of action and, and predicting right. off-target effects and, and have confidence in that more binary risk profile of drug development. I also just feel like, as I mentioned, you can create a lot of value in, in biotech by selling the dream. Talking about the yeah. promise of a market or, or what a drug could do, and frequently those things can get partnered in that ecosystem early and, and exits happen much earlier. In medtech, that's pretty rare. Yeah. You really have to go and execute on clinical trials, prove evidence, prove cost effectiveness. And when we do that, we get rewarded. It's challenging to do, and it's sometimes a longer path. But I like thinking through that total process of validating something for all the stakeholders we have to be considerate of. It's very multifaceted strategically and, and I think tactically. And I just enjoy starting early in that process and seeing things all the way through. So for those who aren't all that familiar with the VC space and, and Justin, maybe particularly your company, give us a better sense of what goes into your process or your firm's process when you're trying to determine who you're going to back, what company you're going to support. Talk about that process a little bit that leads to investment. Yeah, and I, and I should say, just to, to provide a little context, we focus on medical technology, which we define pretty broadly. It could include yeah medical devices, but also diagnostics or life sciences tools, digital health increasingly or the intersection yeah. of information technology in these markets, and even some tech-enabled services businesses. So it's a pretty broad mandate. But frankly, we're just not really trying to do biotech drug development in the way that a lot of other healthcare firms do, do focus. For us, we integrate a lot into what we think about being interesting for an investment from I think first appreciating where the needs are in the market. We have a strong clinical focus. We think a lot about patient care and disease states and the ways in which diseases are treated. And we think holistically, not only about the medical technology approaches, but what drugs are doing well or what they're not doing well and and where healthcare services, frankly, could be more efficient. But we think carefully about opportunities for innovation, you know, to impact healthcare. And they need to do so by improving clinical outcomes. And they should do so in ways that are more efficient and ideally save costs in the system. From there, we think about what does it mean to take something that's an idea or an early stage product and get it in a position where all the stakeholders that have to come together to adopt something, including physicians and surgeons or hospitals and facilities, but also payers and patients, 
all believe that this is the right new standard of care. You know, that's a path, that's a process. And it's everything from product ideation to development, clinical evidence generation, regulatory approval, market development, including reimbursement, and then good commercialization. Yeah. So we think about that entire path and, and we look at things all along that path and we decide what makes for a good investment opportunity, you know, relative to where something's at along that path, right. which is where we think we can get them. Yeah. We've talked a lot about in the past, the MedTech ecosystem. And if you look at it over the course of the last 15, 20 years, it's gotten better and it's gotten worse at different times, right? It feels like in the past four to five years, Justin, it's been fairly strong. Is that your take as well? And can you talk about where you see innovation in the next five or 10 years, your focus, small companies, mid-sized, large, where is it really coming from? Yeah, that's a great question. And I do think over the last probably five, six years, things have strengthened considerably, at least over the course of my career. When I started probably around 2005, med device in particular was more of our focus. And, and that ecosystem was pretty healthy. I think we ran into some challenges with FDA timelines and expectations around what it takes to get something to market. That became a very challenging period. Frankly, we, we've still seen probably a 50% contraction in the allocation of venture capital to medical technology compared to other fields, even right. though the, the overall tide has risen for venture-backed innovation, a lot less of it has gone to our companies. And it's reflective of that period, and I think a hangover effect. But I'd say through a lot of good collaboration with FDA and sincere efforts to improve on their part, we've addressed a lot of those challenges on the FDA side. And, and yet there are still things we have to navigate around reimbursement and timelines right. that are challenging. Yeah. But I think overall, our industry has evolved from one where we've had a lot of big companies build businesses in large blockbuster categories like orthopedics and interventional cardiology. And those companies have now matured and have significant commercial scale and the ability to get innovation to patients on a widespread basis. And that's great for patient access. I think, though, that there is a role in the ecosystem for startups at the early end right. of the spectrum where our companies and their ability to focus on doing everything you have to do on one particular product, one innovation, allows them to execute really efficiently. And so getting through that development process on the path to market is something our, I think our companies have a core competency at or a competitive advantage at in a lot of ways. In some cases, they can commercialize and scale those in the market really yeah. efficiently as an independent business. In other cases, we really should try to figure out the right and efficient way to hand off the technologies we're developing to those companies with those economies of scale that have a presence in the market that could get them to patients sooner. And, and I think that's how I think about our ecosystem. Yeah. What do we want to invest in? Where are the needs from the patients and the clinicians perspective? And, and what kind of role should our venture back companies be playing to address right. those? And then how do we work with our partners, you know, at the large corporates to do that? You mentioned earlier, Justin, your interest in policy. I've been in DC and working in the policy space for I hate to admit it, almost 30 years now. The one thing that I've seen from my earliest time that hasn't changed a lot, to be honest with you, is not many policymakers and politicians understand the importance of regulatory and reimbursement policy and the impact that can have on the innovation ecosystem. And we've seen that play out in a couple different ways, I think, over the years. I think back about the device tax, for example, right? a well-intended, perhaps, policy on behalf of federal policymakers, but the impact that had on the innovation ecosystem was 
was quite negative, right? And since it's been re- repealed, it's gotten better. Can you talk about that tax a little bit and sort of what you think about from a taxation standpoint going forward that can impact innovation? There were a lot of challenges with that policy, right? right. And, I, and I think that on the one hand, it would you would think that some relatively small single-digit tax on revenue should be readily absorbed by a, quote, multi-billion dollar ecosystem. Unfortunately, where that tax and where others can really negatively impact innovation is, is in, I think, two ways. One, for small companies, people, I think, don't appreciate how expensive it is to develop these products in the first yeah. place. And even when you have FDA approval and you're in the early process of actually selling your product and getting it out into the market, you're not profitable. And so that added tax on revenue, right, the top line money coming in, is simply just costing more venture capital to support the losses of that business until they get to a certain scale. And usually that scale is pretty large before you can be a profitable standalone business. So it was almost like a, a double whammy to those companies that are just starting to generate some revenue, but now paying a tax on it and frankly having to raise more dilutive capital just to fund that tax. So for the small companies, it was particularly burdensome. Yeah. I think at the other end of the ecosystem, our large companies also really struggled under that. Yeah. Our big companies, many of them are publicly traded, are really measured on their earnings performance. Our companies at large scale can be profitable, but a three or 4% tax becomes a very significant percentage of their profitability. Right. on a percent basis. And when Wall Street and their investors have expectations around growing those earnings over time, it's hard to just grow your top line to compensate for that. Yeah. We would love it. If, if you could just do that, yeah. I think we all would, right? That's already right. kind of what we're doing in the first place. And so if you've got to make up for additional expenses to taxes, it often comes in the way of restricting spending on innovation and things like R&D. That also implies jobs, right? right? And so I'm afraid a lot of companies did reduce hiring plans as a result of that tax. And, and often that further exacerbated their internal capability to innovate. I am empathetic. There are, there are a lot of good programs we need to fund and figure out how to, right. I think, share you know, as an industry and do our best to have a strong, well-functioning healthcare system, particularly to, to improve patient access. But it's really important how we think about the impact of, of what we do to pay for some of these things, particularly when they can stifle an innovation ecosystem that's already been struggling, yeah. uh, given the extended timelines and things like that, that, that make the math pretty challenging, true early stage innovation. It's a really important admonition to those who are policymakers, right? As you think about the current challenges we have, think about the infrastructure bill and so many other things they're working on. The policy and the spend is well-intended and has a good outcome in some aspects of the economy. But if you do it wrong, you can counteract the good by having bad impact, right? And I think about the current debate and discussion about the corporate income tax and how that's going to impact companies as well. Do you have thoughts on, on the corporate income tax as well, Justin, from where you sit? Well, I think, number one, we have to maintain a perspective on global competitiveness. Right. As we've seen, it is increasingly a market in which we're competing not only with ourselves internally in this country, but others. We've even seen, frankly, some of our large peers in our category domicile to other markets for tax policy. And I think that people have to remember taxes 
and the economics associated with them do create incentives and yeah. people will respond to those incentives and frequently in ways that the policymakers, I think, wouldn't intend or expect, but, but right. they can be relatively predictable. I think, too, that our ecosystem is still pretty fragile on the early end of the spectrum. And when I think about what we're ultimately trying to achieve with respect to healthcare, which is, which is such a large percentage of our GDP and where we're spending increasing amounts of money, we have to support innovation to drive new efficiencies into care delivery. And I personally believe that med tech is a huge lever through which we can actually yeah. take cost out of the system. Transitioning care out of high cost centers into lower cost centers, for example, we know can save large amounts of spend. If we can move more procedures out of hospitals, which are expensive and, and frequently challenging for a whole bunch of other reasons, into less expensive settings like ambulatory surgery centers or the office or outpatient centers, we're going to save a lot of money, but you can't do that without innovative med tech that can facilitate right. delivering that care safely and efficiently in these other centers. Things like reimbursement policy and taxes yeah. influence a lot of our ability to do that and invest right. in those things. And if we're cutting off that supply of capital early or we're disincentivizing it, it just pushes out the amount of time and the magnitude of the benefit we can all see down the road as we, yeah. as we support those kinds of innovations. So that's a lot of what influences my approach to policymaking is helping people understand some of those unintended consequences from the perspective of early stage companies and frankly, everybody in our ecosystem. Yeah. You talked about reimbursement, which is a really important one. It feels like we've, while there's always room for improvement, the regulatory side has gotten a lot better over the past five or six years, but there's still a lag, isn't there, on the reimbursement side? And the lack of predictability, it seems to me, impacts the way many investors think and how companies grow as well. And you and I have discussed and advocated for this policy out of CMS called MSIP, right? The Medicare Coverage of Innovative Therapies. You've got great passion around this, I think probably because of the investments that you do. But can you talk about why that's important, Justin, and, and why the current administration needs to sort of better understand the value of it to the innovation ecosystem? Yeah, th I think this is a really important one. And fundamentally, I think what a lot of people don't appreciate about innovation in medical technology, medical devices, medical procedures, diagnostics, is that the reimbursement path is very complicated. It's much more complicated than I think the drug side. Frankly, yeah. we're often figuring out how to pay for not only a product in the market, but a service, right? right. And there are physicians and there are facilities and all these things come together to deliver care. We have to figure out how to pay for those things. And truly innovative medical products often don't fit into the existing frameworks we have with respect to codes and payment amounts and coverage policies by insurers. And if you don't fit into that framework, you really can't build a business. You can't right. commercialize. You can't facilitate adoption and frankly, patient access until you have those things. And I think what people don't appreciate is that there is a long path to get from an innovation as a concept through rigorous product development with high quality standards, and then through work with FDA, a clinical evidence plan, you know, that really validates safety and efficacy. And then to get that FDA approval, that process alone can take seven to 10 years. Right. depending on the nature of those clinical trials and things like that. And I appreciate all that. I think that stuff's really important. And I, I appreciate a high bar on our standards. 
But just because you have FDA approval doesn't mean everything else just sort of falls into place. Yeah. Whether you're a small company or a big company. And the extra time it takes to then go develop new codes and insurance coverage policies so that patients can actually receive the care from this innovation can take another five to seven years, all of which is capital intensive and frequently supported by private investors, venture capitalists, not public investors. Most public investors only fund things when they're really generating lots of revenue in the US right. and they have a clear path to profitability. So all that timeline, all that expense falls on private stage funding. And when we raise a venture capital fund, we raise a 10-year long partnership. And so if it's going to take me 15 years to get a product from an early stage breakthrough innovation idea through to a marketable opportunity with reimbursement and things like that in place, I just exceeded the life of my venture capital partnership by 50%. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it literally is, is uneconomic. I, I can't fund that first six to seven years of timeline. Right. And the system breaks down. So we have to figure out how to address the serialization and these timelines and the capital intensity of, of getting new products to patients. And so MSIT as a policy is really intended to take the highest value potential innovations that impact patient lives, these breakthrough innovations that FDA designates and then approves according to the highest standards in the world, to patients. Right. And to at least create a window in time where we have coverage with Medicare patients, our companies can start to get those physicians and patients engaged with our technologies, treat patients who have a significant unmet need, and frankly, typically no alternatives. That's why they're breakthrough in the first place. If we can get that sort of four-year window where MSIT provides that coverage, and we can further validate cost-effectiveness along the way, it is transformative on the math for us and at what point we can actually start investing in these truly early-stage projects. So it's really a fundamental need. And it, it, at least to my mind, MSIT was the most elegant way we could think about addressing this. It still leaves out all the challenges we have with private payers right. know, and these timelines and things like that, but at least gives our companies a lifeline to navigate that path. And there's a lot of nuance in the detail. Yeah. It's often hard to wrap your head around, but I try my best to engage with our policymakers and legislators and, and educate. And I think when we have the opportunity to do that, it's been pretty well received. Yeah, it has been. And Justin, we appreciate all the work you did over the past two or three years, really making the case for that. And it was encouraging when you saw the previous administration kind of go, oh, I get it now, right? I see the value in predictability in the Medicare coverage pathway and agree that that was something they thought they should do. I'm hopeful that the new administration will embrace it in the same way. And if there are ways to tweak it, let's tweak it, right? But let's not shut it down when there's so much promise with a policy like that. And it does worry me just a little bit, right, that the progress we made might be pulled back significantly if those who are now policymakers don't fully understand the value of this new policy. I'm with you. It is quite concerning to me. The goal was to develop something that was very balanced, narrowly tailored, focused on our most critical unmet needs, and, and really expediting patient access. Yeah. And in the meanwhile, we want CMS engaged. We know our companies need to bear risk, right? right. And that we've got to validate, continue to always validate the value of these technologies. And one thing that's important to note about medical technology development is it is a process through which there's constant improvement. Just like I mentioned, we, we've got a product that we're selling, but 
it's part of a procedure, right? It's part of right. a care pathway. And when you look at the long arc of medical technology innovation, look at something like stents for heart disease. The first stent cases took hours and hours to do, right? right. And you got 10 people standing around the table watching right. the stent right. get deployed, and it takes 50% longer than, than cardiac bypass surgery. Right. You fast forward five, 10 years later, you know, that learning curve drops precipitously. Right. You know, costs all come down surrounding the intensity of that procedure. And it becomes an incredibly valuable alternative to right. cardiac surgery. We have to give innovations in med tech that time to get over that curve. Our policymakers have to appreciate that we just need a chance yeah. to get started on that path. And if we can do that predictably with more reasonable timelines and therefore capital requirements, a lot more innovation capital is going to come into the ecosystem. And we're going to get a lot more shots on goal, things that can right. really bend the curve cost. Yeah. It's been a little frustrating to me to hear the critics of it. I think misrepresent in so many ways the intent of the policy and the actual policy itself, right? The, there's a notion that for some reason, we're going to rush products through the FDA that aren't going to be safe and effective, that they're going to get into patients, patients are going to be harmed, the government's going to spend too much money, and we're all going to be harmed by it, right? It's exactly the opposite of that, which is so frustrating to me. They're going through a federally approved pathway. The FDA says they're safe and effective. They're getting to patients one way or the other. Medicare patients should have access to it as well. And at the end of the day, Justin, you know this as a doctor, doctors make the determination about whether or not that product should be used, right? And they're doing it based on what's in the best interest of the patient, not the best interest of the technology company. And I feel like that's so often lost in the conversation right now. It, it is a little bit frustrating. Well, I, I agree with you. As I mentioned earlier, the integrity of our FDA approval process is really important to me as a stakeholder right. in the system. I think about it like I'm a patient or my family member is going to be eligible for one of these products. I think trust in that system is incredibly important. And, yep. and when I think people have put up some arguments that say, oh, well, we can't trust that that FDA approval process provides us an assurance that this technology is appropriate for Medicare patients, I just think that's it's pretty misleading frankly. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's, it's frankly fair to the FDA review process. I think when they evaluate the data on a clinical evidence plan, you know, to provide approval for something, and if the age range for that product includes Medicare beneficiaries, we should trust that it is safe and effective for those patients. Yeah. And in the breakthrough designation process, we are fundamentally saying that this is a product or an innovation that is responsive to an otherwise completely unmet need. And if approved by FDA, if it validates that clinical utility, we need to get that to patients. You know, Medicare yeah. patients deserve that opportunity. So that was the intent of the, of the design of the program, for it to be narrowly tailored and, and maintain very high bars. And frankly, just to give these companies a little bit of an opportunity to continue to prove all the things we're already going to do for the test of reasonable and necessary for Medicare patients. But if we can't do it in a reasonable time frame, and I mean it when I say these timelines are, are 15 to even 20 years in some cases, like it's not going to happen. Right. You know, right. our investors just, we, we will not fund these innovations that can, can dramatically change lives because it's, it is uneconomic. And I, right. can't, I can't make an argument to our limited partners that says, hey, you know, this is just a fundamentally important clinical opportunity. I can't help it that the investment case doesn't match up to what right. you need to see to bear the risk and time associated with supporting us to do it. I can't, you just can't do it. Yeah. And there's nobody out there that will. Yeah. So it's important. 
And Justin, it's not unique to IMSIT, right? Many of the payment policies that go through CMS really do have an impact on innovation and the innovation ecosystem. I think most recently about the hospital outpatient rule. And we corresponded about that a little bit and some of the concerns about the initial rule that has rolled out. Can you speak to that rule and some of the concerns you have about that? Well, if you take a step back, right, we, we sort of have this annual reimbursement. I don't know what you want to call it. It's not a phenomenon, but, you know, we've got the inpatient, we've got the outpatient, we've got the physician fee schedule, right? right? These are three sort of linchpin components of our reimbursement framework. And, and obviously CMS is an incredibly important entity and Medicare is an incredibly important payer for all of healthcare. When you look at what's happening right now, the inpatient rule, the IPPS just got announced as final. And I'd say most categories saw something like a two to 3% improvement. Right. Uh, increase, right. In reimbursement levels across the board, pretty consistent with like inflation. Right. And that's good. It's healthy. Right. It's predictable. It's reasonable. But it's a positive direction, consistent with where I think people need to maintain alignment on how to provide the best care for patients. When you look at the outpatient rule and the physician fee schedule, there are a dozen examples of 20 to 25% cuts proposed and cuts proposed across the board in the physician fee schedule. And the challenge, in my opinion, is this directly impacts a lot of care delivery in the outpatient, the office-based setting, the ambulatory surgery center, i.e. lower cost settings where innovation can enable more cost-effective and equivalent if not superior care to be delivered. And in a period where we just, we're still navigating COVID and its impact on hospitals, yeah. we have every incentive we need to shift care out of the hospital setting into these lesser acuity environments and preserve capacity for things like COVID patients when those things happen. But with those reimbursement cuts, we're, we're directly disincentivizing the types of procedures and the enabling technologies we should be investing in to do just that. So from a policy standpoint, I just scratch my head when you step back and look at the trends right. and the incentives or disincentives that they're creating with the variability across these different reimbursement schemes. It's pretty broken, honestly. Right. It's really frustrating. It is frustrating, and it often feels like while, again, well-intended from a federal budgetary standpoint, some of these reductions might be, right, given the deficits that we're running, that perhaps it's not holistic in the way that they're thinking about the impact on the economy. Because cuts to reimbursement in one area impact jobs and innovation and growth in another area. And it would be great if there was a way for people to think about that, too, as they're going through this reimbursement, these reimbursement decisions, right? Not just what should they be paid for, but how do those decisions impact the broader ecosystem? And maybe one of the things that we can continue to educate policymakers on, right, going forward. You're part of our Excel group now, Justin, and interact so much directly with our small companies, and we're so grateful for your leadership there. But those companies tell a particularly unique story about cuts in the federal programs, policies in the, in the federal programs as well. And you've talked to a lot of policymakers about that over the years. Can you reflect on your experience with these Excel companies and how it's changed the way some are thinking? I think it's been a question of survival, right, for, yeah. for these companies. Again, what's a rational kind of investment or undertaking for an entrepreneur? When you realize that there is no business without FDA approval, that comes first and foremost. So, right. so we've worked really hard to ensure 
good process. We focus on things at AdvaMed like Medufa to ensure that FDA has the resources to provide efficient, consistent, good communication with our companies. And that makes a huge difference, right? If, If we can predict the timeline for something and it's reasonable, right? If it's not burdensome or overly burdensome, it, it can be funded. But when you have to go get reimbursement after that, the math just breaks down. And, and I think entrepreneurs have learned that lesson. We've seen many promising early stage companies run out of money yeah, or multiple rounds of investment with positive progress on things like product development and clinical evidence that's outstanding and, and regulatory approvals that are achieved get wiped because the next round of capital has to come in and still earn a return on that ultimate outcome. And, and by the way, if a timeline that used to take seven years now takes 12, the end market hasn't grown in these disease states so much that it makes up for that extended timeline and, and capital requirements. So from an investment standpoint, early stage investors in medtech have just really gotten steamrolled. Right. And we've stopped funding those kinds of projects. You just can't step in front of something that's going to require 15 years and $200 million to get to market. Right. Well, Justin, it's been a a fascinating conversation with you today, and and we appreciate you taking time to talk with us. I think so many people who listen to this will be educated in a way they haven't been before on the entire ecosystem of medtech innovation, particularly on the front end, the VC side. I wanted to close with a question more broadly, if if you don't mind, about COVID and the impact it's had on your company and the way that you do business. I've talked to a lot of CEOs on this podcast and others, and it's been fascinating how COVID has affected every segment of our industry. In many ways, it's similar. In other ways, it's very different. But as you reflect on the past 18 months or so from the perspective of a venture capitalist running a, a big firm like yours, how has COVID impacted how you've done your work daily and sort of what you see has changed going forward, in, at least in your business? Yeah, it's a good question. And I should say, despite the challenges, the work we put into addressing things like our reimbursement challenges, we are optimistic about our ecosystem. We're just, we are pursuing strategies that are responsive to the environment, right? Like we talked right. about incentives. I, I would like to see the, the salad bar have a few more choices. Yeah. Right. right. And so if we can, we can incentivize more early stage innovation, more categories, I think that's great. You know, COVID, COVID was challenging for us, like most businesses. I think we did adapt through things like a lot of virtualization and Zoom meetings and by and large navigated that very well. You know, I think our companies did the same. Right. The beauty of backing talented entrepreneurs is they are entrepreneurial. You know, they're yeah. very resourceful. Right. They figure out how to get things done and they're really committed. Right. Right. People have lots of motivations to do this, but I think by and large, the most important one to our, ourselves and our companies and our entrepreneurs is improving patient care. Right. And when you see something like COVID present challenges, what we're trying to do as part of our mission, you figure out how to work around it. Right. In a lot of ways, you know, I think our entrepreneurs found that they needed to be more nimble in selecting sites. And as COVID came in waves early on in different geographies, we had to shift and we had to right. figure out how to roll clinical trials in other locations or do early commercialization in sites that were open and doing procedures. Frankly, an important thesis of ours continues to be enabling technologies that allow care to be delivered in lower cost, you know, more efficient settings. And to some extent, a lot of our companies are focused on products and procedures in the office or the ambulatory surgery center. And 
And those were not as challenging a venue as the hospital. I'd say today we're still seeing a lot of challenges on supply chain. Yeah. Our, our suppliers have staffing challenges. They've got bandwidth constraints. They've got to prioritize and they've had to prioritize certain things that are quite directly responsive to COVID and those needs. And so I think we're navigating the turbulence associated with that well. I think in the end, hopefully, we've also seen some things change or drive an evolution in how we deliver care, how our companies function, how we support our employees, remote work, and some good things can come out of this based on our adaptability. So overall, we've maintained a consistent pace on our investing. We've tried to be thoughtful about not running headfirst into something that's got a big COVID challenge immediately in front of it. We've tried to make sure that we can support our entrepreneurs as best as we can as they, as they do the hard work to get these innovations to market. It's certainly been a dynamic time. Every month feels different. But overall, I think we feel good about the direction we're headed. To be in the business you are, you have to have a core of optimism about you and hope about you in order to continue to have the success you are. I know we've talked about this before. There have been times that have been challenging. We do have policy issues that we struggle with year to year. But overall, the arc of progress for MedTech is great. And your optimism about the next five or 10 years is encouraging. Well, I appreciate it. It's a credit to our entrepreneurs and the fact that we do have such an important mission you know, with respect to patients and healthcare. It, it affects all of us personally. We know there are so many opportunities to improve. There's a lot of ways in which technologies and trends are impacting, cutting across the med device and med tech ecosystem. And we're going to continue to support innovation wherever we can find it. Well, we appreciate you taking time to join us. I said this before, but I'll say it again. I think most people don't understand the important value that the venture capital community provides to patients at the end of the day. It's often overlooked, right? And the work that you do directly impacts patients' lives in a really, really meaningful way. So you uh, are such an important part of AdvaMed and a part of our ecosystem as well. So on behalf of everyone, we we appreciate your dedication to this industry and to the patients we serve. And thanks for taking time to join us today, Justin. Thank you for joining us for this episode of MedTech POV. For more information and to subscribe to our podcast, go to advamed.org slash podcast. You can also subscribe to your favorite streaming platform. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of MedTech POV.